Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. Our Bible reading this morning uh, comes to, to us from 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Thanks God. Thanks be to God. Well, morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you again this morning. The great privilege to preach every day this week, and we're moving through 1 John. So on Tuesday, uh, we discovered that doctrine is not a dirty word. It's actually essential for evangelism and fellowship, and it brings great joy. Uh, on Wednesday, just yesterday, we looked at uh, the uh, important lesson not to be a cockroach, to run from the light of God's holiness, his uh, gaze. And we found out that uh, confessing our sins regularly led to being cleansed and purified, again, bringing us great joy. And today we're looking at fair income Christianity in the passage that Doug just read. Uh, assurance of salvation has uh, always been a topic in Christian theology and the Christian life, and it's gone up and down, as most things do throughout my lifetime. Uh, sometimes it has intense interest, other times it's left to the side. Uh, certainly two of the cardinal truths of the Christian faith uh, that uh, we can have assurance of salvation. And the other one I was thinking of is the deity of Christ. And both of those are ways in which to distinguish true blue Christianity from the cults. I remember as a young man, when Jehovah's Witnesses would knock on my door, I'd love engaging them. I was a brash young man in those days. Now I'm a brash older, middle-aged or something man. And uh, um, uh, the two texts I'd like to take them to, would one of them was in Colossians 2, I'd say to them, look, you think, Colossians 2 verse 8, that I've been taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, believing in this Trinity thing, the deity of Christ, and I think that's true of you. And then verse 9 comes through, and on my side, so to speak, 
For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. My favorite verse on assurance of salvation was from 1 John, 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And uh, uh, sometimes I would cheekily change the verb and say, so that you may hope or that, so that you may wish. And then when they got excited, I'd say, oh, actually, I'm sorry, I misread a bit, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Certainly, assurance of salvation is a key feature of genuine Christianity. And one John, as it turns out, um, has the best and the fullest answers in the whole Bible on this topic. The passage for today is the first of those several key texts. John's purpose in writing is to reassure confused Christians. Uh, some of them were doubting their salvation because of intruders in the church, if we can read between the lines. And if John's gospel is written to bring people to faith, 1 John is written to give assurance of faith, one to produce faith, the other to accredit fair income faith. So to use the language of the passage from verse 3, do you really know God? Verse 5, do you really love God? Verse 6, do you really live in God? And how can you tell? Uh, the church to which John wrote had been told they didn't really and they felt quite unsure. Uh, 1 John supplies tests then for the identification of fair dinkum Christianity. There's two kind of tests in the letter. One is uh, kind of a lifestyle test, and the other is a belief or doctrine test. Uh, you'll have to wait till next year when I continue this series to hear the doctrine ones. Uh, today, it's a lifestyle test. So to those uh, people in the church that John was writing to, uh, John writes to reassure them of their faith. And this is a, a passage in a sermon, friends, just to bring us back to basics. And uh, that's my message to the valedictorians, uh, stick to the basics. Uh, 1 John 2, 3 to 11 gives us two tests of authentic Christian experience. The first is Christian obedience. Verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And in context, the command of which he's speaking is Jesus' command recorded in the fourth gospel to love one another. Uh, the test of whether you love God or not, then, is not whether you sing up big or whether you talk about him all the time. It's in the quiet and costly obedience of life. The first test is whether we share God's moral concerns. Remember, God is light and uh, his perfect holiness, his righteousness, the fact that he is truth, are the things that should animate and inform the way we live. Assurance, then, is not here about a subjective experience, but about the objective test of Christian obedience. Now, obedience is not a fashionable idea in our day. Uh, something called expressive individualism is all the rage, whether you know it or not. It's the way you find yourself. You look within yourself to find yourself and one of the tenets of expressive individualism is that you reject all external authority because it's holding you back from expressing your authentic identity and from finding true happiness in life. Um, as uh, young children might say, supposedly. Now, um, what's wrong with that? Well, there's lots wrong with that, but it's actually in the Bible that obedience is one of the ways where to make moral progress in life. I even heard a sermon a couple of years ago in Melbourne in an evangelical church in which the preacher preached against the notion of obedience, even though the uh, language of obedience was in the passage he was expounding. 
Uh, he didn't, uh, that didn't stop him because he just skipped over that bit. Don't get me wrong. The Bible, of course, has many ways of speaking about moral progress of believers, uh, but without doubt, obedience is one of them. The apostle says it three times in verses three to five. We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Uh, whoever says, I know him, but and then he puts it negatively, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And then in verse five, if anyone obeys his word, God's love is made complete. There are certain things, friends, that Christians do and don't do. The don't do lists are at certain points in the New Testament. You can find them, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, Romans 1 in Paul's letters, talking about non-Christian lifestyle. Christians don't do sexual immorality. We don't worship false gods. We don't behave greedily. We're not characterized by drunkenness or slander. Um, and the things we do do that are to characterize our life in obedience to God. Uh, we forgive, we share our possessions, we confess our sins, and so on. Now, John says more about this obedience. He tells us what the obedience actually looks like, um, namely, verse 6, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now, I don't know if you remember or if any of you were involved. Some years ago, we had wristbands with the initials or with the letters what would Jesus do? And this is kind of one of the theme verses for those people. Now, believe it or not, some evangelical Christians were not happy with what would Jesus do. They wanted to say, uh, what did Jesus do? Because they felt like the imitation of Christ was somehow a diminishing of the objective work of the atonement. Um, you've, I'm sure you've met some people like that. I'm hoping not too many people in the room are like that. But certainly, uh, the the it's very easy to slip into these kind of false bifurcations. The, what we understand to be the main thing, the fact that we're forgiven through the cross, suddenly becomes the only thing. And then if you say anything else about the cross or about Jesus, you're somehow undermining it. It's terrible. So make sure you're a both and rather than an either or person. John himself wrote of Jesus providing the atoning sacrifice for our sins just a few verses earlier in verse 2 of chapter 2. So when he says whoever claims to live in God must live as Jesus did, it's a very helpful thing to ask yourself, what would Jesus do? In fact, the example of Jesus is held up across the New Testament for us and sometimes specifically in relation to the cross. Jesus himself said, take up your cross daily in Luke's version and follow me. And uh, he says to his disciples, I've set you an example when he washed his disciples' feet. Paul says, I uh, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 1 Peter says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. So the first test is an objective one of our lifestyle. Our obedience in imitation of Christ shows us that our love for God is real. A second and vital test of fair income Christianity is another command, and it's related, of course. It's this. It's our affection and love for other Christians. Uh, then in verse 7, dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you've had since the beginning. The old command is the message you have heard. Now, in context, uh, you'll find that this message is what Jesus said himself in John 13 and 15 and elsewhere in the gospel, to love one another. 
So the command to love one another is something they were told from the beginning. So it's not a, it's not a new command to them. It's an old command. Uh, and uh, he says, what I'm writing to you about love is built upon what Jesus taught us. There's nothing novel about it. I'm just reminding you of what you already know. Uh, I'm not writing a new command, verse 7. And then in verse 8, he says, I am writing you a new command. So this is what I would call, friends, a say what moment. And this is John's style, and it's not one I recommend for your essay writing. So basically, he likes to grab your attention to intrigue you, to make sure that you see things um, in full technicolor and hear them in surround sound. So this is not an old command. Um, this is a new command. This is not a new command. It's an old command. What, what's he getting at? The command to love is not new. Because of Jesus and his example of love, though, it has new meaning. It has new depth. It has new color. It has a new claim on us, a new urgency. And Jesus himself said, of course, a new command I give you, love one another, and it's new because of the next bit. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. The command to love is an old command. It's actually in Leviticus and elsewhere. Uh, the command to love with Jesus in mind, has new quality and depth. Love is a mark of fair income Christianity because love is the primary commandment. It's also a mark of fair income Christianity because it's a sign of the new age. Verse 8, yes, I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, in Jesus, and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So again, John likes to play with his imagery of darkness and light. And the point here is that the new age, the kingdom of God, which Jesus inaugurated, uh, was a kingdom of light. And uh, Paul agrees elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13, the famous passage about love, the apostle says quite clearly, uh, these th three things remain, faith, hope, and love. Uh, and the greatest of these is love, because love never fails. Love is God's eschatological power, is the way one commentator puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, not me and not Roy, someone else. The power of the future age already breaks into the present world. So love is really what heaven, what the age to come, the new heavens and the new earth is all about. And it is to distinctively stamp our lives here in the present. The life of heaven is now the way we are to live. The darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Uh, so, brothers and sisters, how are we going with this command to love one another? Uh, certainly, student life, faculty life, staff life, it can be a very selfish life. And in fact, the faculty and the registry reward your selfishness. The harder you work on your assignments, the less you pay attention to those around you, the more focus you have, the higher the marks you'll get. So there's a great temptation at college to be very much self-focused on my own progress, uh, my own achievements. That's true for many areas of life for faculty as well. The pandemic has brought both more need for love and less opportunities for love. Uh, we're not physically present with each other, and many of us are struggling in all sorts of ways. 
And But I have to say, friends, I've been encouraged by the signs of Ridley Love even during the last two years when we're not able to be physically present with each other. So I've heard of and sometimes received small gifts, messages, offers of help. Um, keeping in touch with each other is a way of expressing that love. So uh, sometimes in sermons we hear people uh, exhorting us uh, to stop doing something and to start doing something. My exhortation today is excel still more uh, with Ridley Love. So Ridley Love is on your way, by the way, if you haven't already received it, a $50 gift voucher for uh, any restaurant you'd like to spend it in. Love can be small, like that $50 voucher. It can also be big, of course. And Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this than to lay down their life for their friends. And again, I know of people who have effectively laid down their lives for their loved ones and their friends, people who are looking after people who are very sick and at great cost to themselves, people who are looking after young children during the pandemic. These are people who are effectively giving up themselves, denying themselves for the sake of others. That's a mark of fair income Christian faith. Yes, love is the primary commandment. It's also a sign of the new age. So our most mundane, down-to-earth, practical acts of love are glimpses of the age to come. They're marks of eternity, of heaven itself. The darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. So John's encouragement to obey the command to love is then followed in verses 9 to 11 with a warning about the opposite of love. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Uh, friends, I don't think there's any doubt that the, there has been a rise of anger and outrage in our society. Some people have spoken about the fact that we now live in a culture of contempt uh, very often it's got to do with political uh, allegiances and uh, I, I kind of shake my head sometimes on social media when Christians are just so scathing about their political allegiance to which they don't belong. Contempt is not too strong a word. It seems as if each of us is making our way through the world against opposition on all sides finding and then staying true to whoever it is we believe ourselves to be. Certainly globalisation and the internet have made judging others easier than ever. John says Christians who despise other Christians are heading for trouble. No Christian starts out, of course, hating a fellow Christian. It starts with a small difference, uh, a mild dislike. It can grow into a rolling of the eyes and envy when a Christian brother or sister succeeds or is given some, uh, um, some benefit that you don't get. And in the end, we rejoice secretly when they weep and we weep when they rejoice. The scariest thing about this kind of behaviour towards others in the body of Christ is, as uh, John puts it in verse 11, it can lead to blindness but if anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness, they don't know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. My experience of darkness 
has been in three areas. Uh, when I was a university student, I worked with an electrician in the summer, and my job was to crawl in the cavities, uh, in the roof cavities and below the house. It wasn't terribly pleasant, I can tell you. Um, another is, as I mentioned yesterday, when I go on a bushwalk in the middle of the night, it can be very dark, although the stars, when you're off in the bush, do give quite a bit of illumination. Uh, my experience of getting lost in the dark is probably when I go to the US for the uh, Biblical Studies Conference in November each year when we're allowed to go, and we stay in a hotel. And you're pretty jet-lagged, you go to bed, all the lights are off, the curtains are drawn, you wake up in the middle of the night, this is probably too much information, and uh, you need to go to the bathroom. Yep. And I can tell you, I've had enormous trouble finding the bathroom in the middle of the night in the dark. It's not a pleasant experience. John says, if you hate your brother or sister, you do not know where you're going. The darkness has blinded you. Surely, friends, this is the most disturbing thing that John says in the letter. We think of sin as just a conscious choice. Sin is a power that can take over our lives. He, uh, John said to us yesterday in, in, chapter, uh, in the sermon from yesterday, in the passage we read, that we can lie to ourselves and be self-deceived. And this is what he says to us today, that not checking sin can lead to being lost in sin. So two marks of uh, fair dinkum Christianity, Christian obedience and Christian love. Now, a caution. Various personalities, depending on what you like, respond differently to this kind of passage. Uh, some of you are uh, uh, sensitive and conscientious and may be filled with self-doubt hearing this kind of thing. Others are much more self-assured. And I think what, what we've got to realise is that John's not wanting to unsettle us. This test of lifestyle can be unsettling. We can ask ourselves, do I measure up? John writes not to disturb but to reassure um, because, as I mentioned earlier, before the tests in Chapter 1, we have the way of grace and forgiveness. His stated purpose in 1 John 5 is to reassure us that if we believe in the name of the Son of God, we may know that we have eternal life. So these are not so much tests as marks of fair income Christianity. And for us today, they're a reminder and a challenge to spur us on. How do you know if you love God, if you live in God? You obey the Lord Jesus and you love your brothers and sisters in the family of God.